Um, one of my pieces that I really love that I've gotten recently is, this is Micheline Thomas, right? It looks like a lipstick and a lip gloss, but that is cast bronze piece. She's just one of the great artists of her generation. Uh, she was inspired by her mother. Her mother was explicitly her muse, and when her mother died, uh, she did a whole series of pieces that were sort of an homage to her mother. And she said, you know, what we do for great men when they die is we make bronze busts of them, right? So she took her mother's, the, it's the ephemera of her mother's life that reminded her of her mother, and she made cast bronze images of them. So this is bronze, and then it's hand-painted. And if you see the detail, of it. You can just see the extraordinary nature of her technique and her craftsmanship there. That's Adrienne Davis, Washington University law professor and an arts advocate. A big part of her arts advocacy is that she's on lots of boards. The St. Louis Art Museum, Lomar Sculpture Park, Opera Theater St. Louis, and a lot more. That sounds like a lot. Yeah, really, I don't know how she does it. And I hear that she's also focused as much on individuals as institutions. She's also well known for her extensive art collection of work by esteemed, mostly African-American artists. I'm Willis Ryder-Arnold. And I'm Nancy Fowler. And this is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast. In May, Davis will receive the Arts Advocacy Award from a group called Women of Achievement St. Louis, But it's funny because she doesn't really even think of herself as an arts advocate. Nor does she always call her assemblage of works by famous artists a collection. So we recently caught up with Davis in her central West End home, where we had a conversation surrounded by that collection. It was a variety of paintings, sculpture, and video art. Yeah, and it was really amazing to talk about art while immersed in that art in her home. So we actually started by asking her what the goal is in all of this. I understand that this may be all part of your effort to sort of encourage new artists and and develop that pipeline of artists in order to actually grow the arts audience. So how are your efforts sort of geared toward that goal? So I think that there are two pieces, right? So one piece is the uh, the pipeline itself, and that is going to be the artists, the curators, the directors, museums, the muse- field of the arts and the museums, as in particular in galleries. It's just it's been a very white-dominated field, and frankly, a field dominated a lot by very wealthy people for lots of lots of lots of reasons. So through the by growing the pipeline of people who can actually touch the arts in some way, either through, not just artists, you're saying right. all these other. All of them. Key players as well. Okay. All of them. Got to start with the artists because if you don't have art, you can't have a museum and you can't have a, you can't have a gallery. So the, um, the artists themselves, but also the museum professionals, I think is equally important because the museum professionals are the people who then decide who the artists are who will be shown. Right. They're the ones that do the education, right? They're the ones that if you have a controversial show or provocative show, they're the ones that help you then figure out how you're going to uh, be in conversation and engage the community in ways that are... Um, so, so the pipeline is a huge part of it. It starts with the artists, but, it, but without the museum professionals, the curators, which professionals, I mean the curators, the, educa- the people who do education, um, the, the directors, but also even the, um, you know, the people who we tend to not notice because they're invisible, the, the gallery attendants, you know, what a lot of people would call quote-unquote security, right? If you, you know, what, what we talk about a lot at these institutions is that your gallery attendants are the people who most people who come to the museum will interact with. The curators won't be there, and unless you're at a program, the museum educators won't be there, but the gallery attendants yeah, are always I there. I never thought of them in that important role. They're always there, and they will set the tone of whether your audience feels welcome and included, or whether your audience feels like this is not a space for me. 
right? Are they, you know, if, if a family comes in with children, are the gallery attendants sort of warm and welcoming and sort of gently guiding them, or are they sort of glaring and making the family feel like this is not a place where I should be with my, with, with my children. So I think growing the entire pipeline is absolutely, uh, absolutely crucial. We have some really wonderful local internships. There's, there's one that we created at, um, at the Kemper Art Museum that's run by, uh, by Allison Taylor. It's a, um, it's, a, it's a small one, but it's had such an impact. It's five weeks, and the first person to do that was Yvonne Osei, who she did that, and then she came and did um, her MFA at Sam Fox, and now she is the Bearden, a Bearden Fellow at the St. Louis Art Museum. So that's how the pipeline works, right? Why is art and the efforts that you are undertaking and the representation of African-American people and African-American artists so important in art when you know, many people struggle just to, to get health care, to get a living wage, to, to just you know, live their daily lives. How can such a lofty project sort of trickle down and, and impact these everyday lives? I would say that there is nothing more political than how we represent other people. That's, that's the basic, that's the starting point. And when you think about the images of, of African Americans that started being put out under slavery, not only because that may have been what a lot of people thought that that African Americans actually were, but because that's what they needed to justify the institution. So if you start with that premise and that understanding, then it's just turtles all the way down, as they, as they would say. And the, the battle for who gets to set the representational meaning of the black body is one that's been fought for 400 years in the United States. It's still being fought. We're seeing it fought at, at the Whitney. We saw it fought with Kara Walker. We saw it fought at, at the Contemporary Art Museum. It's still being fought. Um, and, and children cannot grow up to think of the world as, to think of equality as a norm, to think of other people as human, to envision themselves as human unless they have representations of themselves that are dignifying and complex and that show them those things. Um, one of the great images out of the civil rights movement is Dr. Martin Luther King marching during the Memphis sanitation workers' strike with the placards that say, I am a man, right? So in fact, we had a, a conference on this called Uncivil Mediations a couple years at Washington University where I work on representations from the civil rights movement, right? The art of the civil rights movement. That, that iconic image then was taken by Glenn Ligon and became a piece of art because the power and the provocation and the defiance of African-American men in the 1960s marching in suits, right, and, and, and just with, with just by the, the, the rebellion of proclaiming I am a man is enough to have people set, you know, police dogs and fire hoses on you. It's so hard, I think, today for people to understand why that would be so provocative, right? So, you know, preserving that image then and having, having Ligon turn that image into actually a piece of art means that this will constantly be, be part of the dialogue. So these, these proclamations, it's hard to separate, separate them out from, are they politics? Are they culture? Are they art? And to me, if they're about representation, then they're about art. So I was going to ask, what role do you actually have in ensuring that it's being followed or developed going forward? I nag people. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, um, I try to do two things. I try to constantly, well, three things. I try to constantly be the voice in the room saying these issues are structural, these issues are not individual, they are structural, and, 
as satisfactory as it can be in the moment to point fingers at individuals and say, you did this or you didn't do this. This is a structural thing so that it, all of us were all implicated and we can't move the needle unless we're all coming together. Right? Can you just so clarify what these issues are? These issues are the ongoing exclusivity and the elitism of, of the arts, which again saturates every single aspect of it from who gets to be an artist, to whose work it's shown for artists, how their work gets valued on the market, who gets access to collectors, who doesn't get access to collectors. Um, and then, uh, you know, as we were talking about with museum professionals, who has who has the capital to be able to access um, arts, arts institutes, which are, you know, um, expensive and can generate very high levels of debt, uh, who gets hired, um, all of this, you know, galleries, who, who runs galleries, who controls art markets. I mean, this, this is um, the question of representation and who gets to represent what humanity is, is one of the great issues of of human nature, it's one of the great questions. So the question of representation and the politics of representation and cultural questions of representation, who gets to control it with the Whitney, you know, is the image of Emmett Till's, of his brutalized body in a coffin, is that something that's proprietary to African Americans? Is that something other people can, can meaningfully and fruitfully engage with? These are all what we would call the politics of representation. And I think it's incredibly important that, that we have a lot of voices in the room in that discussion. We're talking with arts advocate, art collector, and law professor Adrian Davis. I'm Nancy Fowler. And I'm Willis Ryder-Arnold. And this is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast. To take us off for a moment, but still related to representation, a lot of people are asking with the Pepsi-Cola ad with, with Kendall Jenner. People are asking, well, who was in the room when this incredibly offensive ad <clears throat> that situates a, um, a white woman's body is at the center, a white woman who's never shown any particular progressive politics. And in that, let me say real quick, that so that's Kendall Jenner and she's offering a, a Pepsi to both the protesters and the police and suddenly, magically, that makes everything better. It makes everything all better and the police do not shoot or brutalize her. So whoever controlled that representation of protest Right? Whoever decided that we're going to try to use uh, protest politics in the United States right now to sell Pepsi. Right? That is what we're going to do. And we're going to use a, an apolitical white woman who, as far as I know, has never engaged in any kind of politics or protest. Uh, so we're going to use her to sell the Pepsi and to be the face of, of the, the, the contemporary protest movement. That's a failure of whoever, of, of the creative decision makers in, in the room. But I don't know who they were, right? But I think that would be a classic case where we would have said, clearly the right voices, voices weren't in the room. I even think of our, one of our local phenomenal um, written artists uh, uh, and designers, Shiraz Gorman, who is herself did, uh, did public relations and marketing. You know, Shiraz could have told them in 30 seconds. Uh, this is not was, going why to Why didn't they work. reach out to her? Why didn't they reach exactly. out to her, the Shirazes of, of, of the, the world? The yeah. of the world. So that's, this is the pipeline. And at every stage, you know, I'm, I try to be a voice in the room to the extent that sometimes I can control or influence the direction of resources. So there are around town right now, um, there's, there's a lot of obviously deep ruptures around race that, I mean, they way predate predate Ferguson, obviously, but Ferguson and the emergence of Black Lives Matter put them squarely uh, on the table for everyone in St. Louis. You just cannot 
cannot avoid it. And the fractures have opened up space, I think, for the younger generation, you know, people far younger than I am, um, for the younger generation of artists and also um, arts professionals to come in and radically rethink some things. So I'm trying where I can to be a quiet voice of advocacy for them. I think it's important that they be front and center in all of this. Wait, um, a quiet voice of advocacy? A quiet voice of advocacy. Okay. A quiet voice of advocacy. You had mentioned the nagging. I just wonder what that oh. looks like. <laughs> well, the, the <laughs> nagging I'm more likely to do with our mainstream arts institutions. Okay. Right? I'll say, hey, maybe we could do this, or hey, maybe we could do that, or hey, let's think about this, or you know, let's think about that. And you know, they're, they have the same goals that I do, so I don't want to make it seem as though it's oppositional. But, but uh, they would sure. certainly say, uh, yeah, we've heard that from Adrian before. That is, that is not the first time we've, uh, we've heard that. Um, but then, so that's the, the mainstream arts institutions. Many of the people there have obviously the same goals that I do. Like Renee Franklin has been a longtime partner, and she's, she's absolutely fantastic. But then the, on, on, on the ground, as they would say, right? So these then would be the, 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 the millennials and the folks, many of them of color, but not all of them, the people who are then trying themselves to, and they probably wouldn't use the language of diversity the way that I would, right? But I would say that they're trying to completely, they would say that they're trying to blow the whole thing up, and I'd say, good for you, I want to stand on the sidelines and, 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 and cheer them on. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, what are the things that, that those of my generation and those of around town who are positioned the way that I am, what can we do to try to, to try to support them? So you've talked a little bit about kind of millennials and what's going on now and the most recent three years, including events in Ferguson and the shooting death of Michael Brown, but you've been an art collector with a specific eye and attention for a number of years. Do you remember a moment where you decided this was going to be your life's work? Collecting art? and advocating for it, a specific type of art and a specific type of approach to collecting. I don't think I can say there was a specific moment. And the reason is it came up as part of my own academic work, which is I'm a, a black feminist theorist. I'm a critical race theorist. I am constantly thinking about questions of identity and justice. You know, I'm a scholar of, of slavery and um, for for many, many years. So I was always drawn to artists who were thinking visually about the things that I was thinking about textually and in terms of my, in terms of my research. So it didn't start off as I thought of myself as a collector. I thought of, I guess I, guess I thought of um, me as almost collecting my compatriots in a different field, right? So I'm writing law review articles and they're painting paintings. Theirs is much more interesting than mine is, right? Like, you know, my stuff, my mother doesn't even read. But, but their stuff, so we're both trying to provoke, I guess, the same set of conversations in some ways. I'm doing it in this much more elite way because I'm doing it at law schools, I'm doing it at college campuses, and I've always worked at places that are, you know, are, are pretty elite, so most people do not have access to them, and most people could not figure out what I, what I write. I can barely figure it out most of the time. But, but what I love about artists is that they, you know, they're doing it in overwhelmingly these public spaces, right? It's visual, so you don't have to have a dictionary beside you to read every word like you do if you're trying to read what I what I write. Um, so that you know, we're both trying to provoke things, but in in these different contexts. So I guess I see myself as conver in conversation with them. I never really thought of myself as a collector. I always thought about myself as who do I want to be in conversation with? Who's thinking about race and gender and slavery and and civil rights the ways that the ways that I am. 
Now at some point, and it was really when I moved here, I began to think of myself as not only are we, in my, are, you know, am I a kind of a fellow intellectual with these folks, but the decisions I'm making about who to buy are also influencing the shape of the art market. Right? And I guess that's why I'm a little bit shy about thinking of myself as an arts advocate, because I sort of just think of myself as one of them. I'm a scholar, they're artists. But yes, the decisions I make about who to buy, who to hang, who to put in storage, uh, what I pay for things, the dealers that I, I, I patronize, all of those go into this big, big bucket of what we call the art market, right? And that, as I said before, who the artists, in terms of who has access to the market, who gets sold, who gets bought, what they go for, on whose walls they hang, these are deeply, deeply, deeply political questions. Your home, where we are now, you have dozens of pieces by Kara Walker, Sam Gilliam, mm -hmm. um, Lorna Simpson. How many people and how often do arts appreciators and arts uh, decision makers get to see this collection and perhaps be influenced by the individual works and also just covering new artists and the importance of artists that are particularly African-American? Well, that's a great question. I try to open it up, and I, again, I feel like my collection is very modest. Nancy knows for years I called it my collectionette, but <laughs> I, I feel like it's very modest, but it's mine. It's meaningful, and it represents what I think is important about race in the world. You know, I, I try to open it up as much as I can. A lot of, I think, the advocacy happens in informal contexts, right? And that goes back to what we've been saying, which is all of the local leadership with whom I've worked are deeply engaged in and thoughtful about questions of how to get more artists of color into the collection, how to tackle the contemporary questions around, um, especially I'd say race is, is the big one. They're constantly thinking about these things in terms of what they buy, what they show, the programming that they do. Um, they don't normally need me in the room to think about it because they have their own teams. But on occasion, you know, we, we sit down together and we talk and we strategize and we think things through. And I, again, this is part of what keeps me in St. Louis is having, is having those conversations. That was Adrienne Davis, who's being awarded for her arts advocacy by the Women of Achievement of St. Louis. And this is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast, produced by Stephanie Lecce and Willis Ryder Arnold. And Nancy Fowler, with help from our editor, David Casares. The music you heard was from local musician Trifecta. You can find Cut and Paste at stlpublicradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis Public Radio's podcast series, Cut and Paste, is made possible by space architects, designers, and builders, creating St. Louis's favorite spaces. Thank you.